You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Hi, this is Deep Trance, and your editor at American Theater Magazine. And I'm Jose Solis, a freelance theater critic. And we're your token theater friends, people who love theater so much that we will eat dinner during a show. And this, I'm only saying that because Jose is having a scone right now while he's recording. This is just like a snack. <laughs> I mean, you're the hobbit who has seven dinners. I, I, I am the hobbit who has like a drawer full of snacks at, at her <laughs> workplace. What are we talking about today, Jose? Today we're going to start with Tina currently running on Broadway. And then we're going to break a rule, and we're going to talk about two shows that closed. We're going to talk about Evita, which ran at City Center, and we're going to talk about Brando Capote, which ran at the tank. Yes. Why are we breaking our don't talk about shows that have closed rule? Because we make the rules. Yes, because this is our show. It's our... Wait, what is it? It's is, our time. No. No, 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 no. Well, that also, but... This is our house. We make the rules. Can I go where you Can I go? Go! go. Lover. Woo! Yeah, except not really because Jose and I have a very platonic relationship. Uh, <laughs> and at the end of this show, we have an announcement to make, but we're not going to announce it now. You just got to go through this entire episode before you found out, find out about a very big, important announcement. Okay, Black Mirror. Okay, Netflix. <laughs> oh, no, or Britney Spears. Oh, God, yes. Okay. <laughs> I have an announcement of an announcement. <laughs> okay, let's do this then. Okay, first up is... Tina, the musical jukebox biopic of Tina Turner, which played on the West End last year. And there's, and it's part of like a worldwide thing where multiple, where this musical is opening up in multiple places in Europe too. Oh, nice. Yeah. Katori Hall wrote the book and it features the music of Tina Turner and Adrian Warren plays Tina Turner. And I just have to say that whatever she is on for the show, I would like some of that because I don't understand how someone can sing 90% of a two and a half hour musical, do an encore, dance, have on on stage costume changes where you know her iconic wig comes down over her head like like Darth Vader in in Star Wars and get beaten up by Ike Turner on stage it's it's so much it, it is so much and i felt overwhelmed i think there's one of those times it's kind of like doing bat out of hell where I was so overwhelmed that it kind of drowned out my reservations about the show. Hmm. How did you, how did you feel? I feel that Tina joins the ranks of the share show and the summer, the Donna Summer musical were, which actually played at the Lunfontein also. Hmm. Uh, where the shows themselves are not good musicals, but Mm-mm. the central performance is really remarkable and unlike summer and show adrian i mean well there's a younger girl who plays 
young like baby Tina. Yeah, but, but she's, she's not. The, yeah. yeah, she's not like she has two songs. Maybe. Yeah, she's not like she's great though. Yeah, 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 lovely. And she's not, but she's not interacting with older Tina. Mm-mm. So yeah, I hats off to Adrian Warren for her stamina. But this musical was not very good. I, I could see what they were trying to do because it was kind of based on the on the Tina biography and kind of based on you know the biopic version of Tina's life. I think what's love's what's love's got to do with it is that the probably I'm not a I'm not like a huge Tina. I'm not a big Tina fan either. Yeah. But the first half is about her relate her tumultuous relationship and breakup with Ike Turner, and then the second half is about her comeback. I think it was just one of those times where they just they put way too much. And so it felt like kind of like a play, like a play by number. Yeah, like a play by the numbers kind of yeah. like thing. I, I mean, I did admire that it was trying to do some interesting stuff because the the book turns uh, Tina's religion, which is not Christianity, is she's a Buddhist, I think, right? Mm-hmm, she's a Buddhist, and she they turned the, her Buddhism into the center of the storytelling, which I thought was really interesting. So. Aesthetically and formally, the show is trying to do some very fun, profound things that the direction does not really follow through with. Because we have, you know, I was so amazed by the opening number where Tina doesn't even, you know, she we don't even sing. see, I mean, we don't even see her. We see her mm-hmm. back. Was that Adrian? We'll never that- know. <laughs> <laughs> and then it turns into this like metaphysical, like jungle thing, like going back to her ancestors and going all the way back to when she was a little girl through nature. And that got me so excited because I felt I was watching like, uh, what's this guy's name? Uh, the guy from the tree of life and Terrence Malick no. film. And I was like, Ooh, I like where this is going. And at times when they brought in these, the spirituality and Tina, well, older Tina, uh, you know, when they, when they talk about her anime's past and how she became Tina, I thought it was doing, it reminded me of for all the women who thought they were going mad, they, for all the women who thought they were mad. Did you see that? Yeah. Yeah. It reminded me of that because there's like this conflict between this woman who becomes a star in the white world and how in a way she's like letting go of her ancestors all these incredible black women like her grandma and younger tina and i love i would have loved to just have the musical focus on this conflict on how she was leaving behind her very black identity to join the ranks of white rock and roll stars which is what she wanted to be she wanted to be like bowie and she wanted to be like elton john and all these people and I would have just, I would have just loved if the musical explored that more. Because we, do we really need to see a man beating a woman on stage? No, because we already saw it in the movie. And Carousel. Yeah, and Carousel. Also. I think it was more the problem was like, it just did too much that you never really, you just saw like the things happen to her and you don't understand what drives her, why she decides to stay all those years with Ike Turner, why she wants to be a rock and roll star. And because this is a jukebox musical and because it's pop songs, which yes, it's, you know, they're very universally themed, but they're not specific. Yeah. You don't know what she's thinking. And, you know, Adrian Warren really, you know, gives her like a sense of drive and gives her personality. But it, it's not like the Judy biopic where you kind of, at the end of it, you kind of understood like the demons. I, you understood why she does what she does. And for me, I didn't quite understand why Tina 
what motivates Tina aside from the very you know stereotypical thing which is I am a singer and I would and I want to be famous which that is a very typical motivation for most jukebox musicals and I would love and I would have loved to see the musical like go deeper than that and and the spiritual element I felt like it was an afterthought mm-hmm. like it maybe she had maybe like a she had like these moments of chanting and we never know what she's chanting what does it mean for her and how maybe being spiritual kind of like gets her through the really tough years we don't see any of that we just see someone who just suffers for a really long time and gets by you know by the grit of like the grit of like her determination her desire to stay stay alive basically were you as angry as i was in the very last scene before the encore, when be- just before she goes on stage to reclaim, you know, her throne as one of the queens, as the queen of rock and roll, mm-hmm. where she is, uh, you know, flanked by two white men who she is thankful for. And she's like, oh, you guys made me. You're my manager and you discovered me and you saved my career. And then mm-hmm. her white boyfriend. And she's like, oh, I love you, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like... Girl, like, we don't need Tina Turner to be, like, you know, the creation of two white men for this to work. And I felt that that's, that was a disservice to Tina Turner. And also, it really made me appreciate Adrian's performance because although she does not get the opportunity to explore all these emotional, psychological aspects of Tina, she, her energy just, like, yeah, dazzles she has the you of it, yeah. to the point where you don't even think about all these things after until after the musical is over, and then you're angry on your way, your way home. Yeah. Or if you're someone who's not like us, who overthinks it, you'll have an entertaining time with, with you know, your parents who probably love Tina Turner. <laughs> so take your mom. I have no idea. Oh God, I don't know. Take, I don't know. <laughs> take the gays. The gay and, 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 is, is, is Tina Turner a gay icon? Yes. Completely, yeah. yeah. But I, I mean, I don't. She was never one of my divas, mm. probably because she had. I mean, we were having that conversation the other day where I was telling you that I don't like Elton John. And yeah, I, and I don't and like Queen. Yes, because I feel their music that's very, you know, made by queer people, but it's music for straight people. Yes, and I always felt that Tina Turner was kind of the same. Like she doesn't have that camp element that like Madonna and Judy and like I don't know Britney and all these other people have. She's more like, you know, she's a rock star. Mm-hmm. And it's harder for, for me at least, to identify. Because, like, rock stars have this very, like, straight male drive. Yeah, of course. That I don't really identify with and that I don't enjoy. So, I mean, some of her songs I do love. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I admire her, but she was not one of my idols growing up. The legs aren't enough for you. I mean, I wish I had those legs. Like, I, she, <laughs> she is my idol at the gym, that I will say. Yeah. yeah. I, my theory when it comes to, like, bio musicals or biopics is the ones that just focus on one particular time in a person's life work better overall because there's just no way you can sum up the entirety, the complexity of a human being and their entire life in two and a half hours. You got to... You can't do both. You can either do like a timeline situation or you can just focus on one thing, one moment and have that and let us get to know who they are. And for me, I feel like it's usually it's usually more more of an enjoyable, less tiring experience when I only have when I only have like one area, like one five year period rather than, oh, shoot, we're seeing this woman go from girls to a woman in two and a half hours. (laughs) It's, It's just too much. 
Yeah, I mean, she can sing multitudes, and if if the musical mm-hmm. had focused, for example, only on the time when she goes to London yeah, to reinvent her, her sound, yeah, yeah, that would have been just like a perfect musical. But it's it's too much and too little time. And God bless you, Adrian Warren, because you're convincing us that we saw a much better musical than we did. Mm-hmm. You you made us love it. This it it, it wasn't simply the best. But was it better than all the rest of the other jukebox musicals? What's love got to do with it? I don't know. <laughs> okay, the next thing we're going, going to be talking about is Avita. And full disclosure, Jose wrote the program notes for this version of it. Yes, yeah, so I know a lot of trivia about it. Evita at City Center was the gala uh, piece for this year's uh, City Center season. It was directed by Sammy Canold, who took the Andrew Lloyd Webber, Tim Rice musical... And kind of turned it on its head a little bit by doing something that seems very, 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 very small, but it's just like it made such a difference. And it's the fact that she cast two women to play Evita. Historically, Evita is only played by one actress, like mm-hmm. Patty Lupone did it, and Madonna did it, and uh, Elena, Elena Roger Rogers. did it on Broadway recently. And Evita is this character who we meet when she's 15 years old, and she ages 18 years because Eva Peron died at age 33 but it's this young girl who suddenly finds herself not suddenly like it takes her a while but she becomes the most powerful woman in argentina and one of the most influential women in the world i mean time magazine did a cover of evita as the sun that's like one of my favorite magazine covers of all time and in the musical basically if you don't know the story it's this young woman who's very ambitious and she kind of sleeps her way to the top until she marries uh, a, a very powerful guy in the military who ends up becoming the president of Argentina, Juan Perón. And then she becomes this revolutionary uh, first lady who dies of cancer at age 33 and sings songs and sings from a balcony and wears beautiful gowns, 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 beautiful gowns. So why is Evita a gay icon? I think it's because of the women who have played her. Mm. I don't think Evita herself, Eva Peron, is actually a very controversial figure because, you know, some people... Yeah, she bankrupted the country, no? And Well, I mean, kind of. And some people, like, she was pop- she was a populist. It's like mm-hmm. Evita is kind of... Her politics were kind of as if someone made a musical about Melania. <laughs> Evita's... Yeah, Evita's politics were very troublesome. She mingled with Nazis and she was friends with a lot of people who nowadays we would not be, you know, happy to socialize with i guess i mean unless you're a republican mm. but um she is a gay icon because of the ballads that andrew lloyd weber and tim rice wrote for her and because of this determination that she has for instance when madonna was cast to play evita and like patty lupone almost had a heart attack i thought i, I always thought that madonna was the perfect choice for evita because madonna's story is evita's story in a way it's this young woman with Actress. such ambition yeah that she doesn't care if she has to use her sexuality to make her way to the top. And I think that in many ways, maybe that's why gay men like her so much. It's because she's she's kind of like Samantha. Yeah. She's a Samantha City. Jones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She, she's like, I will blow anyone as long as I can kneel and breathe. I mean, Evita doesn't say that. <laughs> but she has... Doesn't she have a Samantha Jones spirit? Yeah, she is. With Carrie Glamour. Mmm... Mm. Mm-hmm. What what was really interesting, and and I'll use this as as an example. I, I well, first I've never seen Evita. I've only ever listened to Evita. The movie? No, I've never seen it. <gasps> I heard the movie was bad, so I didn't watch it. Oh, 
No, totally the movie was about Patty Lupone. The gays. What gays are you mingling with? They're the wrong gays. <laughs> the movie is incredible. Did you know, for, for instance, that in 1996 at the Golden Globes, Madonna upset... I mean, was she an upset? I don't know, because it's the Golden Globes. But Madonna won the Best Actress in a Musical Golden Globe Award over Frances McDormand in Fargo, who went to win the Oscar for Best Actress. Madonna was oh, nominated. Feud. No, there was no, no? feud. Like okay. Frances McDormand doesn't feud probably. But Madonna won that Golden Globe and I think it was, you know, it was like perfect. Like in the very same way that Lady Gaga was so good mm-hmm. in A Star is Born, Madonna was born to play Evita. Sorry, Patty, but she was. I don't think I've ever heard anyone have good things to say about Madonna and Evita. So <gasps> this is very interesting information for me. Okay, so I've never seen, I've never seen it. I've only listened to it. And when listening to Evita is weird, you don't really under, like, it, it feels very sparse when you listen to it because there's no, you know, I mean, the, it's practically sung through, but there's very, like, you don't get a lot of the, um, like the context. Yeah. Yeah. Context, the why, why is she doing this? What is happening politically? Like, what's her political platform? I have no idea. What's the problem with Argentina? I don't know, but oh, this sounds good. Because <laughs> I think, yeah. I think that's what Sammy Kennold got at from the, you know, got at that's a, really the center of the musical. Because the musical, I mean, we, I know that you want those details because they're important for you to have a you know a larger understanding of what was going on but mm-hmm. i love that sammy reclaims that because it's not important this is about evita and this is about for instance you know the the narrator of evita is che guevara right yes who evita never met in real life no and yeah. so it's what this is what confused me i thought when i listened to it like in the there must be a book that contextualizes what the fuck he's doing there he's there because men wrote this musical and why is he there jose i am so confused and he's never identified on stage because men wrote this musical and men could not give a woman you know a musical about a woman named after the women they could not give her the power to narrate her story so they had to have a man that's the reason Oh, yeah, because I thought from the I thought from like the tango when I listened to it for the first time I thought, I thought oh they must have had like a love affair a secret love affair or something and that's why they're doing together. Okay, I'm even more confused about this musical now. It yeah. makes no fucking sense. They never met in real life. They never <laughs> met like at all. It's just a man. Just like if if someone if someone were to write a musical about you and they had like your your what I don't know a stranger in the subway be the narrator <laughs> and be fighting you and arguing with you. Mm-hmm. So what I liked about this this revival at City Center was that Sammy so reclaims that yeah. you're cold. No, no. It's like, I'm so confused. Oh, no, because it's not that confusing. Once you remove the man and you pretend that Che is not there, and then Sammy turns him into this like asshole, right? He's such an asshole in this production, which is what Che mm-hmm. should be, because he's the man who sees the woman rise to the top. And he's so angry at this woman he's rising to the top. He's criticizing her the entire time. Exactly, which is what men do. But when you, when you remove all the beautiful songs and all the pretty clothes, isn't it? Isn't she kind of problematic though? So isn't his criticism kind of valid? Of course, but think about the ways in which he criticizes her. He, he criticizes her for using sex as a transactional thing, right? Mm-hmm. Which, regardless of her political beliefs, right? Regardless of that, is that bad? No. No, it's not. Right. He criticizes her for being an actress and a chorus girl, right? And then Mm -hmm. ascending to the top. Is that bad? No. Exactly. So all the things that he criticizes her for are not her politics, but just all the things that make her a woman 
in a part of this like stratosphere where she doesn't belong, according to him. Well, she also criticizes her for like money laundering too. Well, I mean, but I mean, yeah. it comes really late into it, so does it matter at that point? Not really, but. What what's interesting? So let's talk about the uh, the two Avitas and what they added to it because I could see because I felt like her characterization was always really thin in listening to it. Here's a really good example, like another suitcase in another hall, which is always like a very throwaway kind of song because there's no context for it and the character never shows up again. But what's interesting is in this version, like Avita, young Avita and older Avita are singing it as well. And younger, and there's a young Avita also holding a suitcase, like looking very vulnerable. And, and so you get the sense that Avita knows that what she's doing is, is like kind of subjugating other people and kind of problematic. But at the same time, you just need to keep on moving forward. Oh yeah, she's super problematic, but I yeah. like that Sammy Kennel makes gives, her aware of it. And she gives her this agency, which other mm-hmm. times she doesn't have. In other, I feel that other people, even in the movie, when they, when they, when they do Evita, they, fo- I think they're on chess side. The people who do this, they're always on Che's side. They mm. think of first all these things as like vapid and like ambitious as an insult, which is, it should not be an insult. So the reason why this is, I was so moved by that scene, because like, I mean, I I cannot speak as a woman, because I am not a woman, but let me ask you that. Like, I mean, you're a powerful woman. Well, thank you. Yeah. Have there, I mean, have there been instances where you have had to exert your power over other women who are like in inferior positions to you and... You were like maybe thinking, oh shit, like this could have been me 10 years ago, but you still have to do what you have to do, even if it's another woman, you know what I mean? Or because you're making use of your resources, the very little you have. And unfortunately in the capitalist society that we live in, in order to get ahead, you need to step on someone. Exactly. And, and then you get it. And then it kind of hurts you that you had to, you know, defeat your people, right? Yeah. So. That's what I got from another suitcase in another hall with this production. That she was like, she was heartbroken because she was that girl, mm-hmm. but she mm-hmm. had to survive and she had to, yeah, and she had to do it to someone else, yeah, in order to get ahead. And I think what was also really beautiful about like Solia Pfeiffer's performance, who plays oh, adult Avita, is like, like you can see her think, which is. Like that that song she sings with Perone where she she like I I'll, I'll be surprisingly good for you and it always comes off like as a very yeah like as, if you just listen to it you just you you think oh the, the, this is like a girl who doesn't know what she's doing flighty and- yeah but but you see her think on stage and you see her conniving in that way and i love like salia's sideways sideways glance glances to the audience like she knows that we know you know what yeah and she's like yeah and like she's so smart and she has such and she has such presence that that you're kind of like yeah that's kind of messed up but you know you you go do you go do your thing you have a plan you know what evita is Cersei lannister oh yeah of course yeah of and course. I, we love Cersei. You love Cersei yeah. Lannister. Like, we love her. And we yeah. know she's, you know, she can be really terrible, but she's doing what she has to do to protect yeah. herself. Yeah, or like, like, like pre- J-Lo and Hustlers. Yes, I, was, I thought you were going to say like <laughs> J-Lo. I was like, J-Lo never had done anything like that. Yeah, no, J-Lo didn't sleep away at the top. She did it on her own. Yes. But no, like J-Lo and Hustlers. Yeah. 
And we love those women because mm-hmm. we should be able, I mean, like, we love ca- women who are bad. Ca- yes. And Carrie Bradshaw. Like, I mean, like, I love, I mean, Carrie's not conniving though. She, she always plays innocent. She plays innocent, but she knows what she's doing. She knew what she was doing to Aiden. But this is a oh, whole damn. other this is that, a whole, that, that, Oh my other god, podcast. it's so cold. Yeah, I know. I think we should have a podcast and because of my announcement, we should like just, No spoilers. I know. Because of my announcement, we should have a podcast about Sex and the City. Sex and the City. Yeah, we'll just watch every single Sex and the City episode and then talk about it. Oh my god, does that exist? We should do it. Do not steal it from us. <laughs> if it doesn't exist, we're doing it. Yeah. So I mean I, I love this production. I thought that Tammy mm-hmm. she brought so I mean it was I was just it was just breathtaking. Yeah. Just the like the set by Jason Sherwood and the uh, costumes. And I, I didn't love the set. The you set didn't love the set? No. The, the set was nothing. Well, I'm a big fan of funerals and stuff, so I, I know, like but all the flowers. The flowers are fine, but that was a only big set piece. Like I expected V to be like extravagant. It was it was kinda like it was very spare otherwise. I remember that the uh the original production that, uh, what's his name? Prince. Hal Prince. Hal Prince. <laughs> that he directed was also almost like completely like bare bones. Like there's no set in Evita. They've always wanted the musical to focus on the characters. Like okay. it's always been, it's always been the opposite of what people think Evita is. It's always been very like bare bones and very like Interesting. black all around and yeah, just like singing in a balcony. And a dress. You know what? I have never seen an audience clap for a hand motion. Oh. Like at the end of Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. And then there's a pause. And then Celia raises her arms up to the heavens. And the audience just goes wild. Yeah. Like, I, 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 I felt gayer after that. Go, Celia. <laughs> Thank you, Celia. Actually, if I had written a review for Evita that I, you know, I didn't, I would have said the following. Did glamour exist before Soleil Pfeiffer? She is just like otherworldly. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, does she even have feet? How does she? She's floating, and she moves. Um, I want to move with such grace. She's gorgeous. I want her to be in more things. Well, almost famous is almost here, so we're gonna see her very soon. Oh goodness. Okay. I <laughs> I I don't know how I feel about that. Did you see it in California? No, I just I'm I'm not a big fan of the movie, and now I'm not a big fan of movies turned into musicals, and what and what. Why does a Cameron Crow? I don't feel like a Cameron Crow movie needs to be a musical. It's just weird all around. What do you have against a good old fashioned movie about a young boy who uses women and a sense <laughs> in the world of men? Yeah, but you know what? So Leah can be my man in Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Oh, God. Yeah. No, so Leah needs to like just like be the queen and just like rule over all this. I want, I want this musical. I want them to do this for a longer run. Well, I mean, can you call your friend Andrew Lloyd Webber? And ask him to make it happen. Yeah, New York City's I know what the hell, man. Yeah, it's I like know. why are you only doing like this beautiful production of Evita for only like two weeks? Did the old men like it? Do you know? Did you read reviews? I for did it? not read reviews. Yeah, I haven't either. So I'll, we'll have to figure Who that out. Who cares what later. the old men think? We don't. We don't. Che Guevara does. <laughs> Mandy Patinkin does. No, Che from this, the character. I don't think Mandy. I don't know Mandy. I love you. <laughs> All right. Well, you can't see Evita, but that that was a city center version. Yeah, and I hope there's a cast recording. Yeah. And last, we're going to talk about a show called Brando Capote, which ran at the tank. This show was inspired by a real-life uh, piece that ran in The New Yorker in 1957, in which um, Truman Capote wrote a profile on Marlon Brando when he was filming the movie Sayonara in Japan. And this uh, hybrid 
show multimedia hybrid show was conceived by Reed Farrington and Sarah Farrington. We actually interviewed Sarah last year, so we have an episode with her. Go check it out. And what they do is they do this multimedia experiences where there's something happening on stage that kind of, you know, alludes to the, uh, to the thing they're talking about. In this case, it's set in some sort of like warehouse in Japan where it's group- in hell, apparently. In hell? Yeah. Uh, in, in, in the uh, playbill set set in purgatory. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Anyway, yeah. but it's some sort of like uh, warehouse in Japan where a group of actors who are not Asian, like I think, were there any Asian actors? Yeah, the lead was Asian. But I mean, like the, the, the background people. No. Well, yeah, like we're, we're doing basically what Marlon Brando was asked to do in many movies where they were playing Asian or they were playing a race that was not theirs. Mm-hmm. And they're doing this choreography and this beautiful moves with silks and they're all dressed in a traditional Japanese garb. And we listened to excerpts from this interview while at the same time, whenever Truman Capote, who's not on stage, like we only hear his voice and Brando's voice. Uh, when Jim Capote asked a question, for instance, about his childhood, then, or about being a father, then we see a clip from Brando and Superman answering that. <laughs> so what they do is this beautiful, like, dialogues between the past and the present and how they clash sometimes. And by having someone like Capote, who was, like, the ultimate gay man, you know, this, like, completely, like, effeminate, pixie-sized, gives zero fucks about toxic masculinity figure interviewing who was at the time the most you know powerful potent symbol of male sex appeal we have this beautiful thing that's actually pretty homoerotic so i had a blast with the show it was an hour long and it packed so much but in latina everything makes sense yeah yeah it was it was weird how much it made sense to me, con- considering I had never read that New Yorker profile, and I only vi- knew very, yeah, you know, like I had a limited knowledge of both Brando and Capote and their relationship to each other, which wasn't very much. What was really interesting to me was the sound design and how they did something really weird, which was they had all the actors lip sync. <laughs> two recordings of the interview but the thing is they weren't recordings the real interview recordings they were other actors reading those recordings and so it felt like it it, it was all done in like one big session and i feel and i and i don't know what you your interpretation of the lip syncing was my interpretation was was like this was hell and and Marlon Brando's like being forced to relive, relive his life over and over again. Oh, that's so, that's so you. That's so like cynical and evil. <laughs> I know. For me, it was drag queens doing lip syncs of drag queens. And I love that because it's, uh, you know, it's a reminder of how performative we have become and how mm. part, you know, for instance, you've watched You've Got Mail, right? Of course. Okay. My favorite movie. One of that, my favorite movies. I thought Sleepless in Seattle was your favorite movie. No, one of my favorite No, oh, okay. no. When Harry Met when Sally. When Harry Met Sally, yeah. All the wrong Meg Ryans. I am All sorry. All the Meg Ryans. Anyway, but remember when, you, when you, and you've got mail, when Tom Hanks is always quoting The Godfather mm-hmm. and to the mattresses and leave the gun, gun take, take the, the cannoli. cannoli. Exactly. 
So for me, that's what the show is about, about how we have taken Brando as Don Corleone, you know, his quotes, and they have become part of our fabric, the way we talk. For instance, like how often are we outside like a staircase and just randomly yell, hey, Stella, right? Mm -hmm. And and for me, that's what it, it was about, about how these people who were so different from each other were able to seep themselves to become a part of us, of who we are now. So that's why the lip syncs uh, made sense to me. That's No, that's how the lip syncs made sense to me. Like, you know, when do we realize that we have also started performing based on performances from performers who were probably performing also in their own personal lives? Because all these profiles, even back then, were such were so supervised by the studios mm -hmm. that, you know, if they yep. said something wrong, like they would kill the story. Yeah. So, you know, you only know who these people were. Yeah. Aside from everyone was on drugs. Everyone. Yeah. And Marlon Brando was by what? Yeah. See, my theory about why Marlon Brando is in hell and being punished is because of all his portrayals of masculinity from Stanley to the Godfather to Last Tango in Paris, where he, you know, practically raped a woman on screen. And we all thought it was OK for a really long time. Like it's seeped into collect the collective American unconscious and actually damage like a whole generations of men into thinking that's what masculinity is. Masculinity is rape. And so now we're seeing like the most recent permutation of that in the form of incels. And so Marlon Brando is being punished for giving birth to incels. Poor Brando, but he was a genius actor. So, I mean, it's not his fault that, well, I mean, the last thing I went Paris thing is like unforgivable, like shame on you, Marlon Brando. Mm -mm. But it's like, you know, all those things are not his fault. I don't think he should be punished for that. I mean, he did not write those parts. Again, last thing I went Paris aside, he did not write streetcar and he did not write the godfather so i don't know it would be like punishing do you think the avengers are going to be punished in the future like chris hemsworth chris hemsworth's gonna go to hell for being all like muscular and hot i i, I hope not because then and every instigate is going to hell too oh i hope so <laughs> i hope so i hope where am i going so i really like this a and i really loved how they um like th there's this really beautiful choreographic thing they did, which was like every so often they would play a, a clip it a clip from a Marlon Brando film, but they would project it on like a fan oh God, or like yes. an umbrella, and just like the choreography of that, where they timed it exact. It was like in different spots every single time, and they and they the actors were able to hold hold it up exactly where they were supposed to. It was insane. It yeah. was like it was like watching people Vogue in a ballroom. Yes. Where they were like doing this, like you saw Casablanca box, right? Did we discuss mm -hmm. this in mm -hmm. our show? Do you remember? No, I didn't see Casablanca box, but you kept telling me I should have, and I was I wish I did because I do love Casablanca. Yeah, and you know that's what they do. They they do this like incredible marriage of dance and theater and film, which mm -hmm. in a way makes me think that maybe Reed and Sarah Farrington are my parents. Yes, they should adopt you. Yes. Because you love them so much. Yes, because they do everything I love. Like they put together all my obsessions on stage. Mm -hmm. So. Can you adopt me, please? Thank mm -hmm. you. No, I do love... I have seen Reed Farrington's work more, and I just love what he does with like video projections and movie references. Yes, they're both so brilliant. It's so sad that it, the run's over, but I mean, I hope this review will inspire you to see whatever they're doing next. Mm -hmm. And now for our next segment, we have an interview with Jasmine Cephas-Jones 
who is currently starring off-Broadway in Cyrano, the musical, and she plays Roxanne opposite Peter Dinklage of Game of Thrones and a new adaptation by Erica Schmidt featuring the music of the Nationals and it's playing at the Dara Roth Theater produced by the new group and we talked to Jasmine not about Hamilton even though we could have but we we're are professionals exactly we're, and we're not basic <laughs> no we're not <laughs> but but we talked to her about why she left theater for a while and why she's and why she's come back so you can listen to the interview right now what does it feel like to slow dance in the sunlight with someone you love? Somebody who sees you and won't ever leave you alone. Whatever comes, I have read stories where the moment. Find it for There's no resisting. Jasmine, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you're currently starring in Cyrano, and can you tell us a little bit about what this musical version is? The musical version. Okay. So this adaptation um, was adapted by Erica Schmidt, um, who also directs the play and is also Peter Dinklage's wife. And Peter Dinklage plays Cyrano. Um, it's a smaller, it's a, it's a shorter version. I think the original is like, it's very, very long. <laughs> it's a very long version. And, um, the music is by the national and the whole entire play is, um, underscored. So it's not, I think people get confused because they're like, it's a musical, but it's not a musical because we don't have these big musical numbers that like keep pushing the narrative. It's not about that. It's actually something that's very um, um, intimate and kind of the the songs come out of just like what the characters are feeling like at that moment in time. Um, so it's a very, very, very like musical piece and almost it so many a lot of people that uh my friends that have seen the show they're like i feel like i'm almost like watching a film mm -hmm. because it's so cinematic and it's so beautiful and the colors are beautiful the costumes i mean we have like all the weather we've got snow in there we've got fall <laughs> like we even have glitter coming from the sky um from from the ceiling or whatever so it's a very kind of like cinematic looking piece that constantly has music throughout the whole um, entire show. Cyrano, who is played by Peter, he doesn't wear a nose. He doesn't mm -hmm. wear like a, a long nose because it's not initially like what the play is about. It's about kind of what's underneath that and about your worth and about not saying what you want to say because you don't feel like you're, you're worth enough. So it's kind of stripped away. It's a very stripped, different, um, pushing the boundaries kind of like organic really cool way of telling the story that goes right to the point this is the first thing you've done on stage since hamilton you know but since yes. then you've done you know blind spotting and also you've been on girls and why did you choose this project in particular to well back to well i think one of the well I, I got a call from erica um she called me and she was just like i want you to play this role i've seen you six times in hamilton um like 
Yeah, she she saw a lot, and I, I I think it was just so special that she kind of reached out to me in that way, and, and also was like, you know, I'm I want I need you to come in and just chemistry read with Pete, and just kind of the way it fell into my lap. I didn't I didn't think I was going to do theater this year at all, and um, I was like, if I'm going to go back, it needs to be something that's super original and cool, and when you come from a show. A very small show, <laughs> a Hamilton that no one knows about. Um, you wanna do, you wanna keep doing stuff that's like cool and original, and I, that just keeps pushing the boundaries of stuff and like storytelling. And this is this is definitely a show that does that. And um, I hadn't been a lead in a show yet, and for me to like act right opposite Pete and do something. That's original like this. I was like, this is actually kind of perfect for me. Watching you on stage in Cyrano, I realized that you were everything that I wanted to be as a little boy. Because <laughs> her gowns. And then, oh my god, that's She's voice. fierce. She's fierce. Roxanne's fierce. I really like, I've completely like fallen in love with her and just how she handles things and kind of just how a, a firecracker she is mm. and like, I just, I really wanted to play her super, super grounded, and but also, like, she says what she feels, and she gets angry, she gets sad, she gets mad, she's happy, she's completely 100% feeling everything that she's feeling, and and is not, doesn't apologize for any of it, um, and I wanted to play this role like a woman of today, even though it's set back, and, well, you... There's no time. Yeah, there's, yeah, it's kind of like it's not about the time, but you know, originally she's a character written in the 1600s that doesn't, you know, back then they didn't really say what they wanted to say, and so I wanted to give her the opportunity to do that. So it's like immediately she's set up of like, "Hi, my name's Roxanne. This is me. I'm fierce in this red dress, and this is what I want." <laughs> you know, it's like it's like I I just love that. I love that. But what was like your process of finding the motivation for her character? Because the way Roxanne's originally written, you know, she's fooled by these men, and it, it's played for laughs a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. And so, how how do you make sure that comes across as you know earnest rather than foolish? Well, I I just I knew, and what I love, I think it also the way that Erica adapted the version, like in. You know, in these scenes and the way that she writes them, it's really more about like her fighting for what she what she wants, and she's gonna fight until she's gonna lie. She's gonna, you know, at first she's kind of like this innocent girl that's like falls in love with this theater, and then you know she falls in love with this man, and then you're like, oh my god, she's lying to Degish, and you're like, wait, Roxanne, this is dangerous, but you're kind of like, but you're, she's still you. You're kind of just like with her because you're like, you believe it, you know, you believe that she will do anything to protect Cyrano from not going to war and protect Christian from not going to war, the man that she loves. So, um, I think it's kind of written in a strong way of like, yes, girl, like, <laughs> you better go ahead and lie and get what you want. Like, exactly. you know what I mean? Cause, cause you like her and you like her and she's charismatic too. So you're just kind of like, you're kind of in the journey with her and you want her to win, you know, you want her to, to get what she wants, even though she doesn't. Your, your father's such an incredible actor. And 
most of the time when we interview, uh, you know, you come from a family of actors, obviously, and many times when we interview uh, performers of color uh, who have no acting, you know, in their family and stuff like that, they're like, I don't know how I ended up acting. Mm. And I wonder if for you, if your dad was ever like, please, Jasmine, don't become a performer. No, it was the opposite. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, uh, meaning like the opposite of like, it was, if, if I wanted to do something ever creatively, my parents were like, yeah, do it, go. You know, it was always like, I mean, I, I grew up in the theater. I was doing my math homework in like the lighting booths, like the black box downtown, like gritty theater. I mean, I saw my dad play like Lucius and Jesus had the A train probably at an age that I shouldn't have. <laughs> so there was just like a part of like the world that I completely understood at like a very, very young age. Um, and really like also as my dad, as a man of color, like going through the hoops that he had to go through to like earn the respect, like also like as a Shakespearean actor as well. And like, So, um, I think all of that uh, kind of balls into that's not that's not a word. Uh, <laughs> do you know? Do Combined, you know what I mean? Combine snowballs, snowballs into yeah. into what I into the performer that I am today. And I think my dad has always told me like it at the end of the day, it's a it's about the work and like you know the respect for the like the work that you do. Um, it's not really, it's not about the glitz or the red card. Like, I couldn't care less about that. I just want to do really good work. Because, you know, you see famous people all the time and it's just like down. <laughs> you know, it's like you're, you're, you're falling for like the wrong thing and like why you're an artist in the first place. And you just have to keep reminding yourself, like, why, why do you do this? And I feel like for me, there is a purpose, which is like inspiring other girls that like look like me and like, also to play characters that's not just the wife that's not just the girlfriend but like has a purpose that's not just the the girl on the arm just for like the accessory i'm really glad that you brought up the word cinematic earlier because i think one of the greatest scenes in any movie that i've seen this decade that's almost over wow <laughs> was the moment in blind spotting when your kid has the gun oh, yeah. and your performance in that scene specifically, I feel like it's seared in my mind yeah. forever because mm -hmm. it's so powerful yeah. and the pain that you convey mm -hmm. is just, you know, like I get chills for mm -hmm. that scene. Oh, thank you. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, doing that scene specifically and obviously that film, which is so incredible because you were in many ways conveying the pain and the anger and the frustration that many of us have mm -hmm. when it comes to gun control and, and what's going on in, in America with violence. Well, I, I think it was it was a combination of a bunch of things. I, I remember doing that scene and um, sitting at the table and like preparing for that scene for like a half an hour and nobody really talked to me. Like people were just like moving cameras and doing all that stuff and then <laughs> I didn't speak to Rafa until like the start of the scene until we started filming it and he came in and like I almost scared the shit <laughs> because <laughs> I think he had no idea that I was gonna go like all the way there and he was just like whoa <laughs> and um, it just kind of like snowballed from there but it, it was also 
like I was kind of just channeling like the fear that I think like we all have when someone gets shot or we hear, you know, we, we see like crazy videos like on the internet of like police brutality and things like that or young kids with guns or like another somebody else getting shot in like Walmart or something like that. It's just like it's it's almost we all kind of have like this trauma that it's not really like we don't really talk about that much, but it's actually just seeing it on screen or seeing it on your phone, it affects you in some way. And I think just channeling that of like really like what I've seen on the internet for the past ever, I don't know, ever since I started watching the TV or really now like the internet on your phone, like on Twitter or whatever, when you start to really think about it, it's, it's a really like painful, painful subject. So I think I was like channeling like the reality of like what that is. And then also, you know, you know, seeing him with, with the gun on the floor, um, acting out like right in front of you, just kind of click something in there as well. Um, so I think it was, <laughs> it really is like channeling kind of what is going on today and how we all handle that. Um, and I think we all kind of have like that little bit of that trauma that we all don't really speak about, you know, because it affects us because the video's right there. You know what I mean? It's, it's right there. And even though you're not, that might not be your family member or somebody that you're close to, it still hits you, you know, when, especially when you see it multiple, multiple times. So I think I was just expressing, it was a combination of a bunch of things and kind of expressing what I was, what I've been feeling for the past how many years, mm. you know? And they owe you an Oscar nomination. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I appreciate it. How many takes did that take? I can't remember. We did a few, but we didn't do a lot mm. because it was very, I mean, I had it as soon as we started shooting um, and it all came out. I mean, I'm always curious with actors who do both TV, I mean, sorry, with actors who do both screen and stage work, like, what's the process for you when you're doing something that dramatic, you know, ten different times within an hour versus doing something dramatic, like, eight times a week and you're just restarting yourself every single day? I think there's, there's just different ways to go about it, like, me doing this show, I, I, the Roxanne, her arc is very, very, it's a crazy arc. And also it gets like very traumatic very quickly. Um, and if you don't know the story, like in the beginning, it's all happy and funny. And then like after intermission, it's not, (laughs) (laughs) it is not. Um, and it's, it's, it's just, I don't really know how to explain it, but it's just like it's something in my mind. It's a way to protect yourself and be able to do something like that eight times a week where as in film, you can kind of really, really go somewhere and transfer yourself because you're not doing it eight times a week. And I guess just depending on like what role you play, but um, you've got to, you have to protect your voice. You've got to protect, preserve yourself like emotionally. So I think there's a, a mix of like an autopilot mixed with like still staying in the reality and making it fresh in order to protect yourself mm-hmm. for months of 
somebody dying in your arms eight times a week. <laughs> the National has a huge following. Like, there's people who are like, I love the National, and that's、yeah. how they. That's how they learn about Cyrano.、Mm-hmm. Were you a fan of the band before? I've never, I've never listened to them before, and、uh, we started this process. And they are the coolest, most like talented people ever.、Um, and we,、uh, I really like noticed it during like the rehearsal process. And then they came in and they just like brought their guitars. And we're like, let's like we were kind of jamming in rehearsal to try to figure out like where the music like sits in our voices and how to like make it a better song. And it really felt more like a jam session than like a rehearsal process. So I thought that was really really cool of just like their approach、um, and how they come up with these crazy like melodies and. Like orchestrate, like you know, the music is beautiful.、Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, I completely fell in love with them. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. When you were little, who were the artists whose posters were like plastered all over your room? Oh my god. <laughs> so my first concert was Prince when I was fourteen. <gasps> okay.、Um, I was obsessed. I'm still obsessed with Stevie Wonder. But then I also had like B2K posters on my wall.、Um, <laughs> I loved Mariah Carey. I Earth, Wind, and Fire. I was a very like my mom had the sickest music collection ever, and she had record CDs and tapes, and I had a whole sound system set up in our corner. And I would like come home and just listen to all of her music. So I knew like a lot of old. Older music that probably a nine or eight year old like would never know, but I listened to the radio. But I also like was deep, deep, deep in her music collection for like hours. Wait, tell us about the Prince concert at fourteen. It was a musicology tour. Oh wow!、Um, and my mom was like, "You got to see him." So we went to the Continental Arena in Jersey because he was sold out in New York, and.、Um, It blew my mind at fourteen. Like I was at the end of my seat, like this. Like what? Like I always knew who Prince was, but seeing him a performer like that, like live, just like blew my mind. And he did like a twenty-minute set that was just acoustic. Like he did like the whole thing. He came out and then just sat with his guitar, his acoustic guitar, and played like classic songs, like Little Red Corvette, Raz. Like, just did it on his guitar, and I was like, "This man's a genius." So, I was hooked. I was hooked, and he's one of my—he's one of my favorite artists of like all time. And, and Hamilton and Cyrano, you're originating parts.、Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, but I have to ask you: if you were to ever do a revival, who are your the characters on your bucket list for revivals? <sighs> I've always—I've always wanted. I always thought Mimi was fun from Rent.、Um, And then so they somebody asked me this: What would you want to like、uh, make as a, do as a musical? And I would love to do like Macbeth, you know, play like Lady Macbeth as and do it as a, I don't know and do it as a musical. <laughs> It's very random. Like a Prince jukebox musical. What Prince? What jukebox? Yeah. Oh my! Ask Erica to do it because she did just do an adaptation、I、of Macbeth. She did. She did. Yeah. She yeah. Did. 
like the all girls one, but like just yeah. do that one and with just with songs. Yes. With songs, yeah. I think it would be dope. I, I, I have to like slip in like one Brooklyn question. Okay. Yeah. Uh, cause you were, uh, born and raised in Midwood. Yeah. I was, I was born in London, but I was raised, um, in Midwood. But yeah, I've lived in Brooklyn my whole entire life. That's so cool. Anyway, I recently moved to Bensonhurst. So oh. we're like neighbor, uh, neighbor neighborhoods. Uh-huh. <laughs> and what are some like Brooklyn recommendations for me and for our viewers and listeners? Oh, like, that's a good hidden spots and places that you love. Okay, so some of my favorite restaurants are on Fifth Avenue and Park Slope, and that's Bogota, uh, which is a Colombian restaurant. Um, Song, which is my favorite, one of my favorite Thai restaurants, and Negril, uh, which is a Jamaican spot. So those are three. Restaurants, some of my favorite, favorite restaurants ever in all of New York City are on Fifth Avenue in Park Slope. I have to go there. Yeah. And since you brought up food and it's Turkey Month, what's like the, the, the one thing you're most grateful for this year? Oh, honestly, my friends. My friends this year have been so supportive and amazing and have just been like the best the best just as you to have your tribe and be surrounded and keep yourself grounded with everything that you're going through the good and the good and bad talk of the blank space behind the sun where you told me you meet me when everyone's gone tell me that nothing makes sense but the sound of my voice in your head when you lie on the ground Make love make sense in the loveliest way Simple and infinite ink black sky Turn me to water like your letters do, babe Make me not know whether to laugh or cry I need more I need more I need waves of desire to come over me and teardrops we, we worked that interview, didn't we? Always work, work, work. work. <laughs> and we did not rehearse this. No. It's terrifying. Oh God! Well, I hope the person you find to replace me on this podcast will also not need to rehearse stuff with you. What are you talking about? Tell me what is, what is this news? Token theater friends is going on hiatus while we figure out our next steps because I just got a job at Broadway.com and I don't know if I can take this podcast with me. Work, work. Yes. I, in, the, in the words of the Donna Summer musical, she works hard for the money. As she should. A New Argentina. Yeah, that's the news. But that's a good. That's good. Oh, thank you. You should and insert like applause in this. Yeah, part. yeah. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll insert like insert fake, fake applause here. Yeah. But it's been such a joy to do this podcast with you. I mean, it's been fun, and we'll see each other. It's not like either of us are dying. We're just like not doing this anymore. But uh, as God is my witness, and I'm doing my Scarlett O'Hara thing right now. As God is my witness, this podcast will not be gone. 
because it's important for us to have this out there. Like uh, we are very appreciative of all of you who have been so supportive. We've been doing this for two years, which is yes, insane. That's insane. And every time I go on YouTube and I see people, more people have subscribed to it. I'm just like, what? Why? But thank you. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, I mean, let's pat ourselves on the back for a second. Let's be mm-hmm. a Vita for a second. Don't cry for me. No one's gonna cry. You must love me. Don't you love the fact that you must love me is now part of mm-hmm. Evita the musical? Like, because they put it in there. Yeah, uh, but they do that with every single m- musical that gets adapted into a mu- movie, and then they have to write an original song to get that best Oscar, that best song Oscar, and then they take that best song and put it into the thing. But like how, cabaret. But how many? The, how many? What? Cabaret? What? Yeah, maybe this time. No, no, no. It's either... No, Mine Hair was written for the cabaret movie. Hmm. It was in the original, and then they included it. Yeah. But how many songs did Andrew Lloyd Webber write for Patti LuPone? He wrote this one for Evita, so bye, Patti. <laughs> he wrote that one for Madonna, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Patti doesn't... Patti thinks he's an asshole, and she doesn't even know what Don't Cry For Me Argentina is about. One Which my, I don't either. <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> I mean, one of my favorite pieces. Let's go back to Madonna for a second, and then we'll go back to you. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite bits of Madonna trivia for people who are Madonna can sing and Madonna sucks and Madonna. Uh, uh, uh. I'm like, well, Madonna is the only performer who has had songs by Stephen Sondheim and Andrew Lloyd Webber written for her. That then went on to win the best original song Oscar. Wait, what Sondheim song did he write for her? Sooner or later. F- for real? From Dick Tracy, yeah. For real? She was in a Dick Tracy movie? Girl, you have some gay homework to do. Oh my god. I, I, I need like a gay education. Totally. Now that I won't do the podcast with you, maybe I can provide my services as a gay tutor. But yeah, Madonna is, you know, Madonna sang songs that Sondheim and Angela Weber wrote for her. So, bravo, Madonna. Okay, then. I guess theater gays are hating for nothing. Because they're just, like, lame. Back to our <laughs> back to our programming. Anyway, you're leaving, but you're not leaving because you're going to be doing fun stuff also. Yeah, I'll, I'll still be doing theater. I'll still, we'll see, still see each other at the shows and before the shows, and we'll still be friends. We just won't be seeing each other. We just won't be talking to mics with each other anymore, and you're going to have to replace me. I mean, there's no such thing as a replacement, but I will find a worthy successor. I'm like Patti LuPone giving my Evita crown to a new Evita. Patty would never give her Evita crown Jesus. to anyone. You know, she would never do that. She's going to carry that into her grave. Uh, so, so just find me, you know, so find, find my Celia Pfeiffer. Yes, you'll be classy. You'll be like Leia Salonga passing her crown to Eva Noblezada. Oh, shoot. Even though I hate that musical, but I get you. But I mean, they're like fabulous and classy and they don't fight. Yeah, they don't fight. Yeah. So, yeah, we're going to be looking for an Eva who's going to succeed Deep. Deep's Leia. So that's nice, right? That's nice. I love it. Yeah. I'll be in touch with all of you soon. Yes. Well... We'll have them lip sync for their lives. Oh, God. You can be Michelle Visage in that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and Token Theater Friends will be at Broadway Con. Yes, we will. 
on January 24th at 11 in the morning. So I will be making some announcements soon on our Twitter and on wherever the podcast goes next. But thank you for doing this with me. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you for being a friend and for giving me a gay education. I've learned so much. I try my best. Podcast. I think we should take it out with a song. And you aren't in t- No, that's not a. <laughs> Neither of us had. The only yeah. song I know from Evita is Argentina. And then, no. Wait. Buenos What's Aires? new? Buenos Aires. That's going to be your new job. What's yeah. new? Broadway.com. <laughs> okay, take us out for the last time then. All right. Remember, theater's more fun when you take a friend. Bye.